Boys and girls, you are dismissed that are headed to Children's Church for those K through entering, I believe, second grade. As a reminder, we have Children's Church, except for on the first Sunday of the month, unless we otherwise communicate about that. For those that are in the room that are other younger listeners, I'll encourage you to fill out your four boxes as we go out, go throughout the service today. And unlike last week, I'm going to get most of them to you pretty early in the service this morning. It's good to hear from our students, good to see how God is working in them. It is neat to see ways in which God is growing them. And I was hearing from my own wife about how I believe they were the second largest group at this multi, or this site in Tennessee. There was one group that had significantly more students, but they were the second biggest group, which is quite a change from several years back when a very small group was going. So I'm thankful for those that continue to invest in our students. I'm thankful for you, church. Some of you wore prayer wristbands around all week as a reminder to pray for a student. If you don't know who that student is and you want to know who that student is and just let them know that you prayed for them and you're welcome to ask them something that they enjoyed or a way in which something God taught them and you need to know who that student is, grab one of our leaders, grab one of the adults in the blue shirt um, and ask them to introduce you to that student. Or if one of your students that you prayed for is one that shared up here, let them know after the service. Hey, I prayed for you this week. It's so great to hear what God taught you. We as a church have a responsibility and an opportunity to be intergenerational in our communication, in our prayer, in our mission, in our outreach. And that's a great way for you to encourage the younger generation through your prayers and letting them know that you prayed through for them. And thank you for those that prayed for them. Last week, we began our series in the book of Judges talking about broken people and yet how God's promises are not broken. We looked at how in the book of Judges, how what starts like a little thing rapidly devolves into a big thing. How the nation begins with almost completely obeying God. And I suggested that by the end of the book, there are utterly horrific things happening amongst God's people, not just to God's people. Today we're going to read from Judges chapter 3 and chapter 4, which begins on page 238 in your pew Bible. And what we're going to see is a cycle where the people of God disobey God. God fulfills his promise to bring punishment upon them. In many cases, they cry out to God. God sends them this mighty deliverer who conquers, and sometimes in some vivid ways, the opposing army. The people experience peace, and in their time of peace, they do not handle success very well. They turn back to idolatry, repeating the cycle in a spiraling, worsening, and worsening manner throughout the book of Judges. So, today we're going to see and look at four different heroes that are only really heroes because of the way God uses them. They're not heroic on their own, by and large. They are heroic because God is the great hero, using people of all sorts of backgrounds as unlikely deliverers for God's purposes. 
the book of Judges, we see God taking a bunch of nobodies with tragic flaws in many cases and using them mightily despite being in a broken culture, which brings me great hope because we live in a world with broken people. And because there are many aspects of me where I need to continue to grow. If I was designing a superhero for God, it would not be me. Okay? And all of you are like, amen, pastor. It would not be you. Okay? Thank you that you did not say amen there. There are appropriate times to say amen. That was not one. Okay? So thank you for holding back. But you know what? If all of us were honest, I don't think any of us would write down a picture of a spiritual superhero and it look exactly like us and this is where the book of judges is beautiful for us today where we see unlikely heroes used mightily because of god the great hero of scripture beginning on page 238 in the pew bible if you don't have a bible at home and a translation you can read it understand let me encourage you keep that pew bible read it Read it throughout the week. Feed yourself in God's Word, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. As I often do with a longer passage where it's a narrative or a story in the Bible, I'm going to read several verses. I'm going to pause and briefly explain. Then I'll read some more, briefly explain. And for the most part, I'm saving our application for the end, although I'm very confident that if we will take a moment and pray and say, God, with your spirit, search my heart and grow me throughout the sermon, that you will find ways in which you can be encouraged in your adoration for the Lord from your heart, in your intellectual understanding of God, and in your volitional obedience throughout the sermon and not just waiting on me to make application at the end. So let's pray in that way. God, search us and know us from your word. As we read your stories of faithful interaction with unfaithful people, would we know you better? Would we love you more? And would we live for you? According to your Spirit's power, would you work according to your word that people might know you, love you, and live for you in light of this text? In your name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 at first. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them in order that, sorry, that all, that is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived at Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal. Hermon, as far as Lebanon, Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses, so that people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their daughters, own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Okay? At the end of chapter 2, God had warned his people and basically said, you didn't conquer the land because of your disobedience. And it looks like they're in a bad situation because of their disobedience. And then we begin chapter 3, and instead of looking like the whole situation was a result of them, God says, I've got a purpose for you. 
Just as Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, at the end of his life, when all sorts of bad things have happened in his life, brought on intentionally by others, he says to them, and for us today, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many nations. God works despite their disobedience. God is not caught off guard by broken people. And the situation that you're in today, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in the room, is not something that has God caught off guard. And it's not something that God can't work in and doesn't even desire to work in, even if you're in a broken situation because of promises that you have broken in your own life. God has a purpose. Now, we get to verse 6. And we see intermarriage here and the serving of their gods. I want to remark briefly on this. Okay, this text doesn't deal with this extensively. This text focuses on their serving other gods. But because historically some Christians have read through passages like this and other passages in the Old Testament and said God does not support interracial marriage or interethnic marriage, I want to address that very briefly. Okay? I want to address that very briefly. The Bible does not show us God against diversity or interracial or interethnic marriage. It shows us against interreligious marriage. The problem here, when they were taking on spouses from the nations, is they were taking on spouses from the nations and adopting their gods. Okay, two specific examples from the Old Testament where there are interracial or interethnic marriages that led to the birth of Christ are actually Rahab from Jericho, also known as Rahab the prostitute. Okay, what a terrible name to be, thing to be known for. And yet she, through faith, recognizing that God was going to conquer and God was mighty, turned, and she actually becomes important in the book of, uh, in the Old Testament. And we also have Ruth, the Moabitess, in the book right after Judges. In fact, written in the time of the book of Judges. We have Ruth saying, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. She marries Boaz. They have Obed, who has Jesse, who has King David. In the lineage of Jesus, during the time of the judges, not condemned for marrying somebody outside her racial or ethnic group, his racial or ethnic group, is Boaz, leading to Jesus. Okay? God is not against interracial or interethnic marriage. What was important here is that as they were uniting in marriage, and they were becoming like the idolatrous people that they were uniting with. Don't get confused. God loves diversity. Interracial or interethnic marriage is totally okay with God, but God is very concerned with us uniting with other believers in marriage and in other close relationships. Who you hang out with most is often who you become. This is a warning text here about 
dating or marrying someone with the goal of getting them to trust Jesus. I, some of these people probably went in. They were like, hey, I'll just marry. I really like them. They're, they're kind of interested. I think I'll, I'll, I'll be with them, and they'll trust Jesus. By God's grace, sometimes that bad strategy works. Okay? Sometimes you make bad decisions, and God in his grace helps things work out. But that is not a good strategy. Okay? That is not a good strategy. It does not typically work out. It results in way more misery for God's people and often compromised by God's people. And in this case, the end of the verse is important. They took them, gave them to their sons, and they served their gods. They were not missionaries in their relationships. They were compromised, idolatrous, as they began closely in their most close relationships affiliating with others now that brings us to verse 11, verse 7 which we can anticipate and the people of israel did what was evil in the sight of the lord duh okay they served their gods they did what was evil so here's what happens they forgot the lord their god and they served the baals and the asherah therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he sold them into the hand of cushion rishathaim king of mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to the war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his king prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the, the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel's a good deliverer, one of the very few in this book. He doesn't have a tragic weakness. He's actually brought up in chapter 1 as well. He sets them free from this dude whose name is repeated multiple times. And by the way, Cushim Rishathim, his name essentially means evil, evil. Okay? So I don't know if that's his nickname or like a name that he took upon himself, but he's like, hey, I'm king evil, evil. I'm king double bad guy. Okay, and I think that's why the name's being repeated twice, or multi, sorry, multiple times all throughout the text, is Othniel is setting them free from the double evil dude that they are serving because of their double evil of serving the other gods. God uses a regular dude, a strong hero even. Boys and girls, in box one, draw a strong hero. Though the rest of the text today and really the book of Judges is about God using unlikely deliverers with great weaknesses, you don't have to have a great weakness to be used mightily by God. You don't have to do dumb things to have an awesome testimony. It is not a boring testimony when God keeps you from being an axe murderer who trusts in Jesus. Okay? You don't have to do a bunch of bad stuff to be useful to God. Boys and girls, do not make a bunch of bad decisions so that you can be like, hey, now God can use me because I'm an unlikely person. No, walk with God by his power, in his grace, and let God use you mightily. Let's pray for Othniel's, not Samson's. Okay? Not Jephthah's, not Gideon's. Let's pray for people that just walk with God humbly and faithfully like Othniel seems to do. So boys and girls, box one, draw a strong hero. Verse 12, right after the land has rest, verse 12, the people of Israel again 
did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, so they abandoned the Lord. Notice that though the people of God broke their promises that they had promised at the end of Joshua, early in Judges, to follow the Lord, God doesn't break his promises to discipline them and yet to deliver them. God punishes them, this case, by raising up and appointing a dude named Eglon, whose name essentially means cow or bull. Okay, so we've got double evil first, and now we've got the guy that's a cow or a bull. Okay, verse 15. This is an entertaining story, by the way, and quite vivid. If you've not read through the book of Judges and been exposed to the content of the book of Judges, your eyes may be open to the vividness of the Bible in the book of Judges. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised them up. For a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute or payment by Eglon, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. And at this point, all of our younger listeners are listening up. A two-edged sword, a cubit in length, which is basically the length between your here and here. Okay, So it's not like a massive, like, pull it out huge four-foot-long sword. Two-edged sword, a little bit on the shorter side, but a lot longer than a knife. All right, so we got that happening. He's made himself a weapon. Verse 16, he made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. He bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute or the payment to the king Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, he returned to the king and said, I have a secret message for you, O king, and he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. All right, so let me recap what's happened at this point. So they've sent a couple of people to pay their annual taxes to the foreign king, the big fat cow of a king. Okay, who the text is essentially saying he's a big man who's named a cow. So he's a fattened cow. And if you read through the Bible a lot, you know what you do with fattened cows, you slaughter them. Okay, and this dude has a sword. And he has come into the king with all of his buddies, said, here, king, here's what we owe you. You're such a great king. And then he walked back away to the idols at Gilgal. Reminder, the people of Israel have idols everywhere. They're worshiping and serving all the wrong things. They are not in right standing with God at this point. He didn't get rid of all the idols. He didn't go back and find the temple of God and be like, man, now I got to go serve God. They didn't turn to God first. No, he's gone back to the king. He says, king, I've got a secret message for you from God. And by the way, he's, the text tells us he's left-handed, but the, the idea behind this, at a time when all warriors were almost right-handed, but the idea behind this is that he is likely deformed in his right hand, not just chosen to use his left hand, but has a deformity. What looks to the world like a disability is his special ability given by God. Because the picture seems to be that all of the king's horses and all of the king's men did not put him through the metal detector when he went back in to see the king the second time. 
All right, they, they stopped and frisked only the side that you would normally search for a soldier with a great big sword on because he didn't look like an intimidating guy and because he had a bad hand. And they knew, like, everybody puts the sword on this side. You've got the big sword, like you pull it out, and there's that metal sound, right, that comes out of it coming out of the sheath. Because of that whoosh didn't happen, when they jerked that side, they were like, oh, this dude's nobody. And the king, big, fat cow king says, oh, okay, you got a message for me? Obviously, you're a little guy. You're not intimidating. You've got a disability. Come on in. You've already paid me. What's your secret message from God? Verse 20, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into the belly of the big fat king. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the chamber behind him and locked them. The king is now dead. Ehud essentially says, big fat cow king that has fattened yourself for the day of slaughter, I've got a secret message for you from God. And the king is like, hey, what's that secret message? And he's like, you're going to die. Secret message delivered. Last message you ever get. Text continues. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they said, surely the king is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and they waited until they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there their lord lay dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, escaped to Sarai. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He was their leader, and he said to them, follow after me. The Lord has given to your hands the enemies, the Moabites. By the way, Ruth, the Moabite, like time of judges, enemy of people of God, but turned to the Lord. God used her mightily. In this case, the Moabites into your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Boys and girls, in box two, you can draw a big king, and if you want to, you can make him look like a cow. Okay? And then I need you to draw a one-armed warrior. But he doesn't need to look like the Incredible Hulk. Okay? Little one-armed warrior, great, big, fat, great cow of a king. Box one, we have, an unli- we have a fairly likely deliverer, Othniel. Box two, we got somebody whose deformity was their ability. Verse 31, really quick one here. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And some of you are like, what is an ox goad? It's a stick that you use to poke oxen to keep them on the right direction. This is Farmer John, okay? Farmer Shamgar, with his ox stick, somehow mightily by God, conquers 600 Philistines. Unlikely Farmer Shamgar unlikely deliverer. That's all we have on him, by the way. But the Bible saw fit to acknowledge him. Boys and girls, in box three, you draw farmer Shamgar with a stick. So at this point, we have Othniel, the fairly regular-looking superhero for a superhero-type guy. We have a big, fat king and a little dude with one arm, and we have a farmer. That's where we're at right now. By the way, some of you are troubled. 
Some of you are like, man, this stuff's in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible. Is this what we should do today? No. Do not go and attack 600 people with a stick. Okay? Not what we want to do. Do not design your own two-edged sword and go conquer a pagan king. In two weeks, we're going to spend some more time as a church talking through the violence in the book of Judges. What does that teach us? How does that, what does that inform us about God? Is this genocide? No. By the way, same example as I gave earlier about Rahab and about uh, Ruth. Multiple examples in that case. That's not the case, but for those of you two weeks out, we're going to deal with this. One of the harder questions in the book of Judges, but I'm deferring that until then because that's a longer session and I want to spend some more time on it that day. Okay. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are parallel chapters. Chapter 5 is poetic and song in nature. Chapter 4 is narrative. If we had Pastor Sam preaching, he would probably choose to preach chapter 5. Me, I'm a basic, hey, what's the narrative? What's the story guy? The poetry stuff and the song stuff isn't me. So I'm not preaching chapter 5's version of the account. I'm preaching chapter 4's version of the account. He might choose chapter 5, but I'm going to be informed and give you a few details from chapter 5 as we walk through chapter 4. And see our fourth unlikely hero. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel... What's that next word? Okay, let's try it again. And the people of Israel... Again. This is the third time. Today. Like, chapter 3. The people of Israel did, verse 7, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera who lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Okay, now some of you are like students of military history, and you're looking back, and you're like, oh, 900 chariots, that's a big deal. For those of you that haven't studied that as much and like know the advantage of a chariot in a military battle during that timeline versus regular dudes, I want you to think of it this way. Think of it like they had 900 tanks. And the other guys were just foot soldiers. No aircraft, no boats, nothing like that. Like dudes on the foot. And then there were 900 tanks. Okay? So we have a different king, but the real guy here that we're talking about is Sisera. Dum, dum, dum. Okay? He is bad guy. Not double bad. He's extra mean. And he is to be feared. Like, if we're watching a movie and he enters the scene that everything turns ominous and dark and he's got his own theme music and he looks tough, like, like me, okay? Okay, not, you're not scared of me. All right, thank you, my boys, for reminding everybody not to be scared of me. All right, so he looks tough. He looks like a superhero. He looks big and bad and mean. He's like six foot eight, 300 pounds of nothing but muscle, multiple weapons everywhere he went in his army of tanks or chariots. He's a bad dude who does bad stuff. And he is the one that they, he is oppressing, not only oppressing and pressing down on them, but doing so cruelly for a long time period. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. In this case, 
One of the few times in the book of Judges where the word judging doesn't mean delivering. It means actually sitting and giving counsel and guidance, but she's going to be used to actually deliver as well. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ethraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, dum-dum-dum, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera, dum-dum-dum, into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. And by the way, 10,000 men, like against 900 chariots and a whole bunch of other soldiers, is not good odds. Okay, they, they were not going to win on their own. Now, It's unclear when Barak says to her, I'm not going unless you're going with me, if that is a sign of his faith in God, where he says something very similar to what Moses says to God in Exodus chapter 33, or if this is a lack of faith, or if he's trying to pretend to be like Moses, but actually still has a lack of faith. He is mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 for having faith, and being used by God mightily. I'm unclear as to whether or not Barak here is actually doing great or not doing great, but what's really important in this is not Barak and how awesome he is. It's actually going to be God, the unlikely, who delivers in an unlikely manner, as we'll see in the rest of the story. Okay, verse 11, not a minor detail. When you're watching a movie, some things are just minor details dropped in and they don't matter. This is an important one. Verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now, none of us probably remember the history on this one. Essentially, the Kenites were not Israelites, but they'd been friendly with the Israelites, but this dude had decided to unite with the conquering people rather than the conquered and oppressed Israel, and they were working alongside, maybe not fighting with Sisera, but enjoying the protection of Sisera and his army. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Benjamin, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon, and Deborah said to him, Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera, dum-dum-dum, into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed, not Barak, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the men, army of Sisera, fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Okay. Summary at this point. The battle happens... According to chapter 5, it happens alongside a river, likely in a dry season. The one thing that actually would really even the tables actually occurred. They fought near a river, and the iron chariot seemingly got stuck in the water. Now, Sisera governed for 20 years. He obviously knew you don't drive iron chariots in a way that they can get stuck. 
during their climate and culture or area, you have wet seasons and dry seasons. This almost certainly happens in the dry season. And here's what Sisera knew. He knew that his God, the God of Baal, who controlled, according to their concepts, controlled the water and the flood and the rain, would protect him. He knew wrongly. Because Baal doesn't control, as they commonly thought, the rain. God does. He placed his trust in his own might and in his own God who controlled the waters, so he thought, and his army fell prey to the Lord. And he, like in almost every great battle scene in every movie that you see, he escapes. All of his troops fall. All the other Israelites are like doing their thing. And now we have here at the end of verse 16, Sisera, big dude, on the run with Barak chasing him. We know where this story is going, right? You've watched the movie before. The hero that led the army has to chase the big bad dude who looks like he's going to beat him, and we know exactly how this story ends. It's going to be an epic battle between back and forth, and he's looking up at him. He's like, I got you here, and the dude like punches him a few times, and it goes poorly, and then it turns around, and they fight back and forth, and that's how we expect this story to go, but let's see what the Bible actually has to say. Sisera fled. On foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Remember the house of Heber, we talked about him in verse 11. He flees, Sisera finds there. And Jael comes out, the wife, comes out to meet Sisera and says to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside into me, don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, or think of it as a blanket or a rug, whatever you want to. He said there, please give me a little water to drink, I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Okay, see the picture? Big dude is now tired. He's been on the run. Needs to recharge so that he's ready to fight. He's been pressing his turbo button too long, and he's got to let it heal, recoup before he battles. So he goes to her, and he's like, hey, we're friendly can you protect me? And she's like, oh yeah, of course, come on in. He's like, I'm cold, I need something to drink. So she wraps him up with a rug and it's going to lie of what he wants her to do. She's recognized, by the way, at this point when Sisera, the big bad dude, comes running on his own, not with his chariots and not with all of his men, that something has changed. And she is very eager to serve whoever is going to be in charge. So he says, hey, can you take care of me and lie if anybody comes and searches for me here? Can you cover me up? And she's like, yeah, come on up. And like a mama wrapping up a little baby, she snuggles up the big bad guy, plays with his hair, and sings him a lullaby after giving him some warm milk to take a nap. In verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and went till it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I'll show you the man that you're looking for. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. Okay? That's in the Bible. She was sneaky. She used her everyday skills, by the way, in that day, like nomad people setting up camp all the time. 
the woman normally used the hammer and the tent pegs and actually relocated the tent and secured it while the man did other stuff. She just used her everyday skills in a really unlikely way. Barak, looking for an epic battle, shows up, and it's over already. Boys and girls in box four, draw a woman with a hammer. Okay, now you got four different types of people here. Incredibly unlikely to be used by God, and God uses the ordinary stuff of their life and their backgrounds for his glory. I want to make a few quick application points. Okay, God does not break his promises. God doesn't break his promises. God does not break his promises. He didn't break his promise to punish his people when they rebel. He didn't break his promise to Barak to help set the people free. He didn't break his promise to Barak that Barak wouldn't be the guy who gets all the credit. We've got lots of broken people in our world and in the world of the book of Judges, and God's promises are not broken even when people are broken. Secondly, God's plan is accomplished even when evil abounds. Even when evil abounds. God doesn't need people, require people to do good stuff for God to do God's stuff. These two chapters are violent. Many struggle with this violence. And like I said, we're going to deal with this a few weeks ago. But right now, I want you to notice, Mr. Double Evil gets taken out by Othniel. The fattened king who forced Israel to serve them and into slavery gets taken out as well. Big bad Sisera. And evil is abounding. So much so that when you read the end of chapter 5, there's a picture of big bad Sisera's mama looking at the window. Where's he coming? Where's he coming? And the, the, her attendants are like, well, he's going to be a few extra minutes because they're taking all the loot and they're bringing home some wombs. Literal. W-O-M-B-S. Okay, what is that? Essentially what all of her attendants are saying is, you know what Sisera does and all of his men, they kill all the men and they bring all the women back. But they don't call them women. They just think of them for their own selfish purposes to do with what they want. Evil is abounding in this time. And God is working in an evil and broken world. Even when evil abounds, God's promises are carried out, just as Genesis 50, 20 says, what you intended for evil, God uses for good for the saving of many nations. God is not caught off guard by broken people. Thirdly, God is the great hero can, who can use anyone and their backgrounds for his purposes. God's the grand hero. He uses anyone and their background for his purposes. Ehud, likely disabled. That's how God used him. Shamgar was a farmer, in my mind, or at least he used a farming tool. Okay? Jael was a woman, not a warrior, and her everyday task was just moving the tent. And that's what she used by God's power in a weird, unlikely manner. God has a track record of using the totally normal and seemingly insignificant people for his mission of making disciples around the globe today. Last week, we heard from a missionary with an accounting background who does logistics to do missions and support missionaries in Europe. God uses all sorts of people with everyday skills for his glory. You don't have to look like a superhero or a super Christian 
to be useful to God. When you surrender to God, he can use you for his glory, no matter your background, made in his image, right, students? All of yourself, what you might call imperfections and others might call disabilities, in many cases, God has made one of the special abilities to be used for his glory. God is the hero, and when we play our parts in his story, we get to see his great work. As we close, I want to keep a bigger picture of God in mind. Let me warn you for a minute. These chapters don't tell us to fight people. These chapters don't tell us to listen to women that sit under trees and prophesy. That's what Deborah did. Okay? These texts don't tell us to go train for ministry by farming and setting up tents. Instead, they show us a bright picture of God. They show us his faithfulness to his promises, his ability to do all things that should move us to worship and to surrender and to recognize that God is the great hero. That when we seem insignificant, that he is the significant one. This text calls us to respond to God who is faithful to his promises. If you're not incredibly amazed by the unusual ways in which God is the great hero of the story who brings deliverance in unlikely ways, then maybe the other thing that stood out to you, or at least should have stood out to you, is God's patience and grace and kindness. Three times in just these chapters, the people of Israel do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the word again is repeated there twice. And that's going to be the whole book of Judges, by the way. People of Israel... Do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord works. Here's the good news for you today. Despite what you've done, despite you doing evil in the sight of the Lord again and again and again, God isn't waiting for you to fix yourself to have a relationship with you. He's waiting for you to admit your mistakes because he sent a deliverer for you. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8 that God displayed his love for us while we were still sinners, enemies of God, doing evil in his sight. He sent Christ for us. The message of the Bible is not clean yourself up so that God loves you. It is you are broken and wicked, and yet God loves you. Turn to him when you have run from him because he is the unlike, he is the hero who comes to unlikely people like you and I with his great love and calls us into a relationship with him. And it's absolutely worth serving him and living for his glory. So in this last song, let me get you to reflect on the faithfulness of God, the amazing grace of God. And if you want to talk or pray, I'll be available in the back. Let's stand now.